Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, good to be here and good to uh, be worshiping with you this morning. Um, happy Mother's Day to my mom. I know she's uh, watching this morning, so that's a nice shout out, uh, shout out to her that I'd like to say. Hey, um, uh, last week was so beautiful. You remember that? And I, I had this thought in my mind, oh, maybe we should uh, broadcast from outside next week. I'm so glad I didn't do that. Uh, it was um, unbelievable this weekend. However, next weekend, I saw that it's supposed to be uh, possibly up to 70 degrees. So, um, hoping on that. Anyway, um, let's turn to the scripture today. We're going to look at the book of Esther. And we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. So, Esther, chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. And let's listen to this. This is God's word for us today. Let's listen and see what he is saying to us. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square in the city in the front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the edict, uh, the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told her to uh, told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy, and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and delivery for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Friends, this is God's word for us today. Thanks be to God. God, thank you so much for your word. Bless us as we look at it. Bless us as we think about what you're saying to us through it. 
And we ask that you will be glorified today in all that we do. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Well, this past week has been a big one for our family. We uh, celebrated yesterday uh, Emily's graduation from Houghton College, so that was a huge yay moment. Uh, There was baccalaureate on Friday that Pastor Kristen and I got to participate in uh, by praying, and then there was commencement uh, yesterday. And so uh, we spent the whole day watching the live stream and uh, interacting with friends and talking with professors, all this uh, over uh, the Internet having a a nice dinner party that wasn't over the internet, that was live. Um, We ate Heidi Hatch cookies that were made to uh, celebrate. That was pretty cool. We just celebrated. It was wonderful. And as I noted already, uh, yesterday it was snowing, like so cold. I was actually thinking in my mind, maybe it's better we're not standing in a giant snowstorm outside on the quad trying to stay warm. Um, (laughs) But obviously doing everything online Uh, was second best. We would have liked to be there in person. But it was a good day, and it kind of, uh, uh, our week was focused on uh, getting ready for that. The speaker was uh, Dr. Deborah Burks, who is a 1976 graduate from Houghton College. She was a chem and math major, and she's now, as you probably know, she's one of the main scientist uh, leaders on the White House Coronavirus Task Force. You see her on TV all the time. It was so cool to have her give a certain, uh, a specific address to the students, and especially in light of the fact uh, that she's a person who uh, a lot of people are listening to right now, so that was a special treat. You know, as she uh, spoke, and I was thinking about what I'm going to speak speak about today, and uh, what Pastor Chris and I are going to speak on this for the next uh, couple weeks, and that is this this idea from Esther that uh, we have been placed in this time, at this in this place for such a time as this. And uh, I've heard lots of commencement speakers use that as a, a challenge to students, or I've, I've heard it be uh, something that um, stewardship campaigns are based on, or capital uh, projects are, are, are based on a theme that is used for such a time as this, we're going to do this big thing, maybe a new beginning of a church or a new opportunity. Well, both Pastor Kristen and I think this passage has something to say to our church in this strange time. But first, I just want to unpack the passage a little bit. It will be helpful if you are reading that and you haven't uh, remembered the rest of the story, you might be saying, what what edict was going on? What was happening? It's helpful to remember what's happening there. In 587 BC, the Jews were dragged away to Babylon by the uh, Babylonians. Uh, They were brought into exile. And shortly afterwards, the Babylonians were taken over by the Persians. And this is a story about the king of Persia named um, Ahasuerus, it says in the Bible, and most scholars think that that is Xerxes I. And um, he was kind of a fascinating uh, ancient Near Eastern king who did all sorts of crazy things. Um, But one of the crazy things he did was when he was dissatisfied with his wife, he decided to hold a giant nationwide beauty contest so that um, he could find a new wife. And so all the most beautiful women in his realm were picked out and um, given all sorts of beauty treatments and all this sorts of stuff. And then he chose who would be his queen. And actually the woman he chose was this young Jewish woman named Esther. And um, she is uh, she was very careful not to point out that she was Jewish. Uh, because that was seen as possibly 
something that would be held against her. And so in the meantime, her cousin Mordecai uh, was uh, a person who had a lot of uh, sense of uh, morals and I should do the right thing. And there was a, another man, a nobleman named Haman, who was wanting everybody to bow to him. And Mordecai basically had the attitude, I don't bow to anybody except God. And so every time Haman came by, Mordecai wouldn't bow. And so Haman becomes incensed at Mordecai. And he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew. And Haman comes up with this crazy plan that in order to get revenge at Mordecai, he's going to wipe out all the Jews who live in Persia. And he goes to King Xerxes, who, as I said, was a bit of a guy who would do crazy things. And he convinces him to sign this edict that the Jews are um, folks who are scary and need to be uh, wiped out. And so this is spread all throughout the land. And this is the reason that Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes and all the Jews are mourning because they're, they know that at a certain time and a certain place that they will be killed. And so Mordecai goes out and begins weeping and wailing and mourning and Esther hears about that. She's locked away in the palace. She doesn't know what's going on about this edict. But he goes out there to be this public spectacle and uh, as he does this, she hears about it, she sends him clothes, says, hey, why are you having a bad day? Here's some uh, nice things to wear. And he says, no, 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 here's the deal. And he sends through the, the messenger that um, the Jews are going to be killed and that she's the only one who can do anything about it, that she needs to go into the king and plead for him to stop this terrible genocide. Well, she reminds um, Mordecai that she can't do this without seriously risking her life because of this strange um, uh, law that says if anybody shows up in the king's presence unannounced, unasked for, that the, the immediate punishment is death unless the king extends his scepter and um, says, uh, no, I'll let you off this time. And so because of this, she says, I don't really want to do that. And Mordecai hears that and says, look, Esther, this, is, this edict is for all Jews. Don't think you're going to get off. And if you don't step up, God will probably send somebody else to uh, save the Jews or save a remnant of the Jews. But you and your family will definitely be wiped out. And then he says these powerful, powerful words. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Did you catch that? It may be, Esther, that God brought you to your current place of power for the precise reason that you can now step up and plead for the lives of your people. That's what Mordecai is saying to her. He's saying maybe God put you into this crazy place so that you can change the course of history. Maybe God let you go through all the hard things that you've gone through, being taken away from your family as a, a young woman, being uh, becoming the wife of this uh, pagan, somewhat crazy king, having to live a life where you're always hiding your Jewish identity in order to uh, keep yourself safe. Maybe God has allowed you to go through all these difficult things because he has a, a greater reason. He knew this moment was coming, and he knew that you and you alone could step into the king's presence and begin to stop it. You know, here's something that I've often found to be true. That God is not afraid to allow us 
to experience challenging situations in order to further the work of his kingdom. Let me say that again. God is not afraid to allow us to experience challenging situations in order to further the work of his kingdom. And friends, we are we're in a challenging situation right now with this worldwide pandemic. Interestingly, it's not the first time that the church has faced a worldwide pandemic which has shut all sorts of things down. Back in the uh, early days of the church, there was a plague that swept through Rome. Most of the people fled to their uh, places outside of the city, but the Christians stuck around and took care of their neighbors. They actually, uh, we have letters of them uh, talking about how they're going to intentionally move to towns where everyone else is fleeing so that they can care for the sick and the dying, even though that they knew that there was a high probability that they would end up dying uh, because of the plague themselves. But that's the kind of response Christians had at that time. In the Middle Ages, of course, the Black Death slept, swept across Europe, and many Christians, uh, once again, were caught up in that. Um, they cared for others. They took care of others. They um, blessed them with um, trying to help them as much as possible. Um, a couple hundred years later, Martin Luther was going through a time of plague. He wrote this whole um, little essay on this. It's, it's worth the read. You should check it out sometime. And um, he basically says, uh, he says a lot of good suggestions, but one of the things he says is we should both care for the people around us as much as possible, not flee, not abandon people, but also be wise to not recklessly put ourselves in danger by refusing to take proper safety measures. I thought that's really interesting that Luther, even at a time before they understood what germs were, uh, was someone still saying, hey, there are some safety precautions that, uh, that um, we figured out, and you should take those precautions. So this is something that Christians have dealt with before, and in actually much harsher circumstances than what we face. But as we face this pandemic week after week, and, and week after week goes by, and we go longer and longer into this strange pause in our lives, this weird gap in our normal activities, this limiting of seeing our loved ones and friends, which is especially felt on a day like today, Mother's Day. As we get more and more into it, I've started to wonder, what does God have for the church in all of this? What is this pandemic teaching us about who we are as the church? If I, if, if I said to probably 95% of you, I, if I said, what is the church? You know the right answer. You'd say, ah, oh, the church is not the building, right? It's the people, right? And, and we know that. But uh, I, I want to suggest that it's not just that the church is not the building, it's the people. I want to suggest that the church is also not the programs, it's the people. It's not the events, it's the people. It's not the activities, it's the people. And even more specifically, the church is not just the Sunday morning experience. It's the people. In, in a very real way, we're being forced to face directly that we have often thought about the church as the activities, the programs, the events, and especially the Sunday morning activities, uh, more than the fact that we are the people of God who if all those things were taken away, we'd still be the church and we'd still be powerful in the power of the Holy Spirit 
to bring about transformation in this world. Look, I'm the first one to line up and say, let's just get back to church as normal. I can't wait to see you all. I hope that I really get to see you soon and uh, face to face. But that may not be what God is wanting us to get out of this time. I'm wondering, what does God want us to learn from this pandemic? What is this pandemic forcing us to realize about the nature and the activity of the church? How can the church come out of this worldwide crisis stronger than before instead of weaker than before? I, all the time I hear um, Christian leaders lamenting, oh boy, I'm really worried that um, fewer people will come back to church. I'm, re I'm really worried that this is going to shut down the church. It's really going to ruin things. I think instead that God can use this to actually make us stronger rather than weaker. Um, there's never an easy time to do this kind of thing. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I face a hard moment, I'm like, oh, this is like a really bad moment. If things were just uh, better in other ways, then yeah, we could really face this. It's never better in other ways. When you come upon something that's really hard to face, it always shows up at an inconvenient time. There are always barriers and hurdles to cross. God can bring us through anything that we face, but I just don't want us to be naively thinking, oh, there, should, there may be to be a better time for this. There's, n there's not a better time for this. This is the time. This is the time that God has put us into. He has called us to this time. I heard a um, very helpful analogy the other day from Alan Hirsch, who's a Christian leader who's respected uh, all across the world. And before I give that to you, I just want to explain a little bit. So it has to do with chess. And I don't know how many of you play chess. For those of you who do, you're going to be like, wow, this is really basic information. But for those of you who don't, uh, this is really important information. So chess happens on a chessboard, 64 squares. There's uh, 32 pieces, and uh, each, each uh, person has 16 pieces each. Okay? And then all of those pieces have different functions. Like pawns can just move one space forward. Um, or two on their first move only, and, uh, and bishops can move diagonally, but they can't move uh, straight up and down, and castles or rooks can move straight up and down, but they can't move diagonally, and the knight, that's the thing that looks like the horse, uh, that can only move up two over one, over one, up two, that type of strange thing. They're, they all have these limitations, except for the queen. The queen can move any number of spaces, whether it's one or all the way across the board. Uh, the queen can also move in any direction, diagonally, uh, north and south, um, east and west. It's, it's, she can move anywhere she wants on the board. She's the most powerful piece on the board. Okay, so this is where Alan Hirsch's analogy comes in. He says, if you want to learn how to play chess well, he says, I've been told by people who are excellent chess players, that the number one thing you can do is set your queen aside and force yourself to play the whole game using all the other pieces first. And the reason is because people tend to use their queen all the time as their dominant piece. They just use the queen all over the board and it becomes uh, the piece that they depend on. And what Hirsch is saying is if we learn how to play without the queen on the chessboard, then when we bring the queen back in, we've learned how to play with all the other pieces really well. 
Then we bring the queen back in, and we will actually be a much stronger chess player. And then he, he says, it's like this with the church. And he suggests this. Our Sunday morning experience, Sunday school, youth group time, worship time, one, two, three services, different styles of worship, all the gathering that goes into it, all the fellowship time, the fact that we have food, coffee hour, the fact that we see each other, the fact that we connect, the fact that we have great musicians who lead us in different kinds of, um, of uh, uh, music, musical worship, the fact that we can um, just give each other hugs, encourage. He says, all of that, that whole Sunday morning experience is our queen. It's our queen. And that's been taken away from us as the church. And so now we have to look at the other tools that are available to us besides gathering activities. And we have to say, what are those tools? Because if God allows us to use those tools and become really good at using them, then when the Sunday morning experience comes back, we can be even stronger rather than weaker as a church. God uses times like this to help the church understand who we are. We're the people of God, saved by Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, sent into the world to testify to everyone that God is love and that God is bringing his kingdom and that he wants the whole world to be a part of this kingdom. He wants all people to feel and sense his love, to be a part of his family. Jesus said this very famously in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I go with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus says, that's your goal. Go make disciples. That's what you're supposed to be doing as the church. Now this may sound weird, but you may have noticed that nowhere in his statement does he suggest that we do this disciple making on Sunday morning gathered in worship using Sunday school curriculum with a great youth program, with good preaching, with our own building, with paid staff, etc., 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 all the things that we're used to. These are all wonderful things, but they all fall into the category of being the queen. And we have other pieces that we can use and need to use, and perhaps God is calling us to use at this time because of the pandemic, and that will help us actually to be stronger. In the 1950s, uh, all the foreign missionaries were kicked out of China. And there were something like, I don't remember the exact numbers, but there were something like a million Christians in China at that time. And everyone was really, really nervous because the Communist Party was in charge and they were persecuting Christians and they were uh, tearing down church buildings and they were doing all sorts of destructive things. And everyone was nervous. Is the church going to be stamped out in China? Well, in the 1990s, when people were allowed to start coming back in the late 80s and the early 90s. What they found is that there were over 75 million Christians in China at that time. And they were trying to figure that out. And in fact, to now they say there could be over 100 million Christians in China. How could this have happened when people were persecuted, when they weren't allowed to meet together in groups of larger than 15 people at a time, when they only had a few buildings and those buildings which were allowed to stay had to be controlled by um, uh, the government um, spies who would sit there and make sure that everything went according to how the government felt good about it. 
And those churches, by the way, they were the ones that just kind of stayed static. They didn't do too much. But the underground churches started to explode. And so people said, how could this happen? And the answer is because when you force everybody into groups of 15 or smaller, 10 or smaller, you force everybody into small groups. And the only way that the gospel spreads is by people being together, helping each other, nourishing each other, feeding each other, challenging each other to say, there are more people outside of this group who need to hear this, being inspired to share their faith, being empowered by the Holy Spirit to go forth and to bring the gospel. And that exponential growth happened because everybody was taken, the Sunday morning experience was taken away from them and they took it themselves and brought it uh, to the world. They were evangelizing and discipling, discipling people in small groups in ones, twos, and threes. And they were in this terrible crisis of the government attacking them, torturing them, killing them, yet the church grew. Friends, I want to suggest that our current reality is an opportunity for us to rethink how we make disciples. We usually hope to bring people to Sunday morning church so that they can hear the gospel, have a pleasant, good experience, say, hey, this is a great place. I'd want to come back. I feel safe here. I like the music here. I like the preaching here. I, want to, I like these people. Everyone feels friendly. That's what our goal is. Let's just get them in so that they'll feel part of the experience. But our wholesale vision, if you remember, has been to connect people in very small, what we might call microgroups, and grow them in the faith and train them to help and grow and train others. And friends, that is literally still possible during this pandemic. There's nothing about this pandemic that would stop any of us from doing this, whether that's using uh, FaceTime or Zoom, any kind of technology whether it's calling people on the phone or whether it's getting together, it's socially distanced properly, uh, but spending a little time together and growing together in the faith, faith in groups of 10 or less. This does not have to be lost time. That's what I'm trying to say here. Our experience now of this pandemic does not have to be a pause on the church for the church to be like, well, we just got to wait it out and we can build the church later when conditions are better. Instead, friends... We can grow, the church can grow now. We literally could come back stronger than weaker. We could come back with more people excited about worshiping because we ourselves reached out to our friends and neighbors and started to connect with them and started to help them connect with God. I see tons of hope in the midst of this crisis. Not meeting on Sunday morning actually may be the really good kick in the pants that I need as your pastor, that Pastor Christian needs as well as your pastor, and, and maybe that all of us need. The kick in the pants, it says that the church can flourish and grow in totally different circumstances than what we're used to. It's time for us to begin doing that. I do think that we can come back stronger rather than weaker. Pastor Christian and I are going to explore this over the next few weeks. But what I really want to ask you to do is to start praying. Did you notice that when Esther finally looked the situation in the face and realized, okay, whoa, Mordecai just reminded me that God may have placed me here just for this moment. Her response is, get all the Jews in the city of Susa together and start praying. Pray and fast for three days and three nights. And then I will go and act. I will go into the king and I will risk my life. And we'll see what God does. 
And so I want to encourage you to begin praying. And yes, even to begin fasting. Take a meal off here or there. Pray. Ask God to empower us to start to move in this direction. Because I believe that God wants to use all of us to help others grow in their love and their trust of God. I think God wants to use all of us to learn how to reach out and uh, share Jesus with others. And I think God wants to fill all of us with his Holy Spirit and that we would be acting in the Spirit's power. We're going to talk about those things over the next weeks, and I'm excited to to, uh, do that together with you. God has chosen you and me. He has chosen all of us at this time, in this place, with these restrictions, with this particular crisis. For such a time as this, God has chosen us. And I hope that you can see it. I hope that you can see that there's a greater plan, that God has amazing things invested here, and that he's going to do great things. We have been placed in Esther's shoes, needing to do something difficult and maybe uncomfortable, but which will save people's eternal lives. God has not spared us some disruption, and maybe even for some folks, pain, and for some folks, even death. He has not spared that in order that his kingdom might be furthered. Our queen, our Sunday morning experience has been taken away, but it may be the healthiest thing to ever happen in our chess game. This may be the most important thing to ever happen in the church in our lifetimes. That's serious, and it's wonderful, because God can use it to build his kingdom. I want you to pray about that. And let's start right now. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for helping us see that you have used people down through the ages, people like Esther, to step up in moments of crisis, and that the overall experience has helped your kingdom grow. So God, I pray that you will use us in this crisis, and we will be people who begin to say, okay, I'm not coming on Sunday morning because that's impossible, but I have the ability to share my faith, to help others grow, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to start doing something. God, please pour your Spirit into us. Please um, begin to help us to pray and ask for divine encounters with other people. Help us to ask for your will to be done. Help us to seek it with prayer and fasting. And Lord, may your church grow and be more powerful because of this time. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.